Listener supported. WNYC Studios. During this holiday season, you likely encountered public nativity scenes depicting the birth of Christ, presenting the family, with very rare exceptions, as white. And the same can be said of his ubiquitous adult portrait, with fair skin and hair, a radiant gold, and eyes fixed on the middle distance. In this segment, which originally aired in 2020, Eloise Blondio, our resident graduate of Harvard Divinity School, traces how the historically dubious image became American canon and its consequences. The first picture of Jesus that Detroit pastor Mbayu Chui remembers seeing belonged to his grandmother. It hung in her bedroom. And of course, it was an image of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy. That picture bothered me, but I never would say anything. You know, I dare not tell my grandmother, would you please take that picture off the wall? (laughs) The eyes moved like it was following you around the room. And at night, in the dark, it glowed. In the 60s and 70s, we had a lot of stuff that glowed in the dark. So, <laughs> And when you say the eyes were moving, the eyes weren't actually moving. They just kind of felt <laughs> like they were, right? No, they, they weren't actually moving. But, you know, as a child, you have an imagination. He saw that image of Jesus, pale skin, long beachy waves, everywhere growing up in Detroit. I d- couldn't explain why, but I, I just didn't feel comfortable with that picture. Of course, you see the same images when Jesus is portrayed anywhere in popular culture. He was 12 years old in 1967 when his city turned into a war zone. Snipers rolled the city. Gunfire flickered from neighborhood to neighborhood. Whole blocks smoldered. The smell was everywhere. For five days, the so-called Detroit riots were credited with sparking the Black Power movement. Over 40 people died. In the aftermath, Chewy drove down Linwood Street with his parents, like he did every weekend. As usual, they passed the statue of Jesus that loomed over the intersection. Seven foot tall, arms outstretched, long hair, white stone. But on this day, Jesus looked different. They painted the statue black. So, of course, the news spread all over the city. Everybody was, whoa. Decades later, a house painter named Joe Nelson would claim credit. He said he didn't want to pray to a white man. Before he covered Jesus' toes with black enamel paint, he wondered if some people would still stop and kneel at his feet, and apparently not. Soon, some white counter-protesters got involved. And then about a week later, they had painted it white again. And then a couple of days later, it was black again. This happened at least three times. And then, I guess, after the third time, they said, okay, forget it. We're not going to keep going back and forth. And they just left it black, and it's still black to this day. (laughs) Sacred Heart, the Catholic seminary that owned the statue, said it intended to keep the statue black to commemorate the 67 riots. Sure enough, they repaint Jesus' black skin every few years. Mbayu Chui, who ministers at a church a mile down the road, still sees it every weekend. In 60s Detroit, the black Jesus signified a victory in a thriving theological debate. But the question is far from settled. Whenever this country reckons with its ongoing legacy of white supremacy, Jesus comes up, this summer included. An activist called Sean King 
issued the following demand on Twitter, quote, all murals and stained glass windows of white Jesus and his European mother and their white friends should also come down. They are a gross form of white supremacy created as tools of oppression. So don't be surprised when they come for your church. Why wouldn't they? No one is stopping them. There is no widespread reports of activists tearing down statues of Jesus. Well, President Trump says unnamed forces want to tear down statues of Jesus. Now they're looking at Jesus Christ. The white Jesus image isn't going anywhere. But where and how did it become the reigning image? Certainly, actors cast as Jesus have almost always been fair-skinned guys with blue eyes. In a long list of cinematic Jesuses, we have, for instance, Willem Dafoe. Father, I'm sorry for being a bad son. And Christian Bale. Who are my kinsmen? But those who hear the word of God and accept it. In a striking break from precedent, white blue-eyed actor Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, had brown eyes on screen. And in an apparent nod to history, he also spoke Aramaic. When people of colour have played Jesus, it's more often in more light-hearted portrayals, like John Legend in Jesus Christ Superstar or on Family Guy. I rode into town on an Yo mama's Or the TV sitcom Black Jesus. Oh, Negro of little faith. All right, Jesus. What you got for me today? I've been good. Whatever you want, man. I need the numbers to the lotto. The lotto. When black actors play Jesus, it's not seen as, you know, realistic. Just because it makes you feel uncomfortable doesn't mean it has to change. You know, I mean, Jesus yeah. was a white man, too. That's Megyn Kelly on Fox News back in 2013. And she's wrong. Most historians, Christian or not, agree that a guy called Jesus existed 2,000 years ago and had a following. There's some contention over whether, you know, he rose from the dead and was the son of God, but scholarly consensus is that he would not have resembled the fair-haired surfer we all know. He probably had darker skin, hair, and eyes. In fact, every few years, a new, allegedly more scientific rendering of Jesus makes the rounds. So what then does science say is the true face of the Son of God? British scientists drew this portrait of what they believe Jesus really looked like. Whatever the tech, none of these educated guesses suggest the real man looked like an Aryan hippie. So why does America cleave to that image? The most familiar Jesus appeared during the Renaissance, when artists started to show Jesus' human side like Rembrandt, and that's how we see him today. But that overlooks an abundance of Jesus depictions from the early church onwards as dark-skinned or racially ambiguous. It also disregards the great rupture between Europe and the not-yet-United States, driven by the Protestant Reformation. Many Protestants hated the visual arts around them and destroyed images of Jesus because they saw these images as violations of the Ten Commandments. Edward Bloom, author of The Color of Christ, The Son of God, and The Saga of Race in America, says that for many years, residents of the colonies and later the U.S. had no images of Jesus. And when they would have dreams where they would see Jesus, they would see him kind of behind a spider web or some kind of veil. So then when Americans create imagery 
of Jesus in the 19th century, they do borrow somewhat from European artwork, but they also borrow from other myths and and fabrications about what Jesus would look like. So assuming the American white Jesus is entirely homegrown, from whence did it spring? The Warner Salmon Head of Christ has become the lightning rod for the white Jesus because it's so ubiquitous, because it became so abundant. In 1940, Warner Salmon made the picture I guarantee you've seen. It has been reproduced by some counts over 500 million times. Solman himself became somewhat of a celebrity as a result. He even went on TV to repaint the image, accompanied by a full choir. I would like to begin the portrait. The portrait is called the Head of Christ. His blue eyes are cast upward. His hair gleams gold. A heavenly diffusion of light frames his head. Solman was inspired in part, yes, by the romantic portrayals of Renaissance painters, but perhaps more so by the Hollywood headshot. Look at studio portraits of actors like Errol Flynn, and you'll see that gauzy light that gazed into the middle distance. Solman made Jesus a movie star. It became so recognizable, and then any image created after it kind of had to deal with it or look similar to it. There being one ridiculously recognizable Jesus, that is new. There's a misconception that people only embrace pictures of God or gods wrought in their own image. That's not true. Solomon's image was and is beloved by all Christians. But, as Edward Bloom notes, white supremacists embraced it because it gave them a kind of moral cover. The Ku Klux Klan actually had documents and pamphlets that presented Jesus as white and his disciples as Klansmen. And Klansmen depicting themselves as followers of Jesus is really what enabled them to think they were doing the right things. They saw Jesus and Jesus' disciples as white, as trying to further a white racial agenda, um, a purity agenda. The KKK wasn't the first group to enlist Jesus in support of white supremacy, even if Solomon's portrait made it easier. The argument for the God-given superiority of the white race, backed by Bible quotations, was cited to defend slavery and the mass murder of indigenous people. It's not hard to see how white Jesus bridged the dissonance for white families who gathered to watch the lynching of black men before skipping off to church. In Europe, Nazi theologians argued Jesus was not Jewish, but actually Aryan. And in 50s America, white Jesus was used to support segregation. And they actually put images of white Jesuses on their um, pamphlets, you know, their calls for organizational meetings to oppose Brown versus the Board of Education. They made the claims that this white Jesus who was in favor of racial purity was strongly against interracial marriage, something that would happen if young people were brought together in schools. And so the ties between the white Jesus and these kind of white purity movements are there throughout the 20th century. 
Dylan Roof, who murdered nine black Christians at a Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015, drew white Jesus in his prison journal. Marquette University's psychology professor, Simon Howard, recalls seeing white Jesus in his great-grandmother's house. And I loved going to her house just, one, because she was an amazing individual in person, but also she had a lot of different figurines and things like on a, a dresser board. But she also had pictures of, of family members. And I remember seeing this one white man repeatedly. And I'm like, who's this white guy in our family? And, you know, learning later that this was Jesus. But it wasn't until he watched the biopic of Malcolm X starring Denzel Washington that Howard realized why the white Jesus picture bothered him. History teaches us that Jesus was born in a region where the people had color. There's proof in the very Bible that you ask us to read. And so, yeah, how do we arrive at this physical representation and and where did it come from? As he got older, Howard read up on the Black Power Movement. He heard speeches by Malcolm X denouncing racism in evangelical churches. You go inside a white church, that's what they're preaching, white nationalism. They got Jesus white, Mary white, God white, everybody white, that's white nationalism. As a psychology student, Howard realized no one had ever studied how white portrayals of God and Jesus actually influence how people see the world. So eventually he did his own study assessing bias with a computerized test called an RIAT, a Race Implicit Association Task, which measures attitudes towards race. He presented subjects with various images, white Jesus among them, and afterwards measured their bias again. And when people are exposed to images of a a white Christ, it makes those implicit associations more pronounced, which means that they had a more pro-white bias after being exposed to an image of a white Jesus. Exposure to white Jesus pictures actually intensifies the view that white people are better than black people. White supremacy is an ideology that is both conscious and unconscious. Don't mean that as like a white supremacist and a white sheet running around terrorizing, burning crosses, but an ideology that associates whiteness with superiority and blackness with inferiority. And This image reinforces that ideology consciously and unconsciously. Howard and every other critic of the image I spoke to are not calling for forced removal. They just want churches to think more deeply about the impact of these betrayals of Jesus. And they're especially concerned about depictions of white Jesus in black churches. When we have these images that we worship, right, and black people are the most religious group in the U.S. and have been for a long time, and overwhelmingly Christian. What I would say for these black individuals is, if you don't want to get rid of the white one, put a black one up there next to the white one. And this is primarily thinking about children because now they're not just solely associating godliness with whiteness. There's a more complicated picture that's being painted. Remember Mbayu Chui, the pastor in Detroit? His church displays no white Jesus. A mile down the street from the famous statue, which still bears its painted black skin, is the Shrine of the Black Madonna, which showcases a mural of Mary with deep brown skin holding a dark-skinned baby Jesus. Chewie saw that image for the first time when he visited the church at 15. It just felt right. It was kind of like a revelation. I said, oh, wow, I never even considered the idea that Jesus could have possibly been black. Wow, 
who could have thought of this? <laughs> Jesus was a man of color. We're just correcting the historical mistake. The Shrine of the Black Madonna was founded in the 60s by a black Christian nationalist, Albert Clegg Jr., who asserted that historically Jesus was a black man with ties to Africa. Other thinkers like James Cone were more interested in how imagining Jesus hanging on the cross as a black man being lynched could bring Christians closer to understanding God. To claim that Christ is white is indeed an anathema, is a betrayal of this God who has created us all as sacred beings and has promised us all a just future. Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas, Episcopal priest and theologian and author of the Black Christ. Why is it a betrayal of that? Because whiteness reflects what it means to be a part of an oppressive culture and reality. And we would be suggesting that God is on the side of those who oppress, that God is on the side of white supremacists. Unlike Clegg, Reverend Brown Douglas doesn't think Jesus was literally a black man. The symbolism is what she's after. Where would the crucified Christ be today? You could see Christ in the face of a George Floyd, right? As he cried out that said he couldn't breathe. That reminded me of Jesus from the cross crying out and saying, I thirst. Religious images invite believers to draw closer to God. They can also represent a worldview. So Jesus has been imagined as George Floyd, as a Native American, a man with AIDS. The list goes on. So why aren't there more churches like Chewy's? His church has an outpost in Liberia where there was a lot of pushback when he brought them prayer cards featuring Mary and Jesus with dark skin. They had never seen images like that before. They too had grown up with images of Jesus as white. It's hard to go against what you've been conditioned to believe, especially as it relates to religion. It's hard. It's really hard. You can teach kids but you can't teach adults what they think they already know. And look, if every white Jesus picture disappeared overnight, America's white supremacy would remain. But we know from Dylan Roof, back through all America's history, and from a raft of psychological research, these pictures do matter. And if the first image Christian kids see of Jesus is a white one, it might take them their whole lives to unlearn it, if they ever do. For On The Media, I'm Eloise Blondier. Thanks for checking out the Midweek Podcast. Don't forget to tune into The Big Show this weekend. And happy holidays. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.